more education I've got, the more I've realized that even though I don't personally want to be a niche practitioner, I don't want to trick myself into thinking I know everything and then potentially doing a disservice because I don't have the time or the bandwidth to do the full scale of due diligence necessary to pick the best product for somebody. Hi, this is Alexandria from Sacramento, California. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. In this episode, our host, Matt Fazell, sits down with Dan Yerger to talk about his work in the financial planning profession, pro bono work, compensation calculations, and why he's removing transactions from his fee model. Up next, you'll hear from Dan himself as he talks about his journey through the profession, what called him to change his fee model, and why he thinks continuing to learn is critical to serving clients better. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. I'm really excited to have you here today to chat about advisor compensation and hear a little bit more about your story. Hey, I'm really excited to be here, Matt. I uh, didn't think I'd be here when I met you back in New Orleans. Yeah, funny how things, uh, you know, they come full circle not not too long down the road. True enough. All right, great. So before we dive into advisor compensation, how did you come into financial planning and where are you currently working today? Uh, I came into financial planning uh, out of grad school. I went and got an MBA with a certification in finance uh, at the time that I was getting out of the Army. Uh, Spent a little bit of time working at IBM uh, while I was in grad school and really came into financial planning as a result of two things. One, I got to kind of do a financial plan as part of grad school for my parents and figured out pretty quickly that even though they'd done all the right stuff, they kind of weren't going to make it in retirement. Um, And past that, you know, when I started looking at really getting into financial world, there's the institutional side, there's the personal side, there's banks and insurance. uh, And I kept coming back to really wanting to make sure I was doing something in financial planning. So that brought me around to starting a independent practice affiliated with Waddell and Reed, which is a dual registered firm out of Kansas City. Um, and I've been practicing affiliated with them for the last four years. Wow, that's really interesting. So what exactly did that financial plan for your parents look like? Like, what was that process? I just think that's a fascinating way to gain that exposure. Sure. So when I took that class, I knew nothing about the financial planning profession, but that was being taught by a CFP uh, as kind of, I think, a part-time piece for him. And he was really just forcing us to go through the financial planning process one step at a time. Uh, The textbook for the course was the CFP education guide from, I think, 2014 by Kaplan. Um, And we were really learning the whole CFP curriculum through this course. Uh, And in the process, of course, you had that assignment to do a financial plan. Plan. Uh, and when I did the one for my folks, uh, they, they both worked in law enforcement for over 25 years each. Um, and so they were on a fixed pension system. And as I think we've seen kind of nationally, pensions have some trouble with cost of living adjustments as time goes on. Um, and that was kind of eye opening for me, uh, you know, doing a financial plan kind of on out of scratch, right? Using Excel worksheets and Word documents isn't, uh, you know, the, the cutting edge of the profession. But, um, you know, it was really shocking to me to see too hard working folks that, you know, I thought were some of the smartest people in the world that were going to get blindsided by something as simple as cost of living. So would you say then that that exposure to that scenario really is what drove you to push towards the career in financial planning versus some of the other financial services that are out there? 
Uh, it was absolutely critical. You know, I don't know for anybody else out there, but when I went and talked to banks, you know, they've got a career track that's set on a calendar. You're going to be a, a junior loan officer for three to five years, and then a senior loan officer for three to five years, and then a branch manager for three to five years, so on and so forth. Or, you know, if you're you're working with an insurance company, you know, they, they have insurance products, and of course, they're the best insurance products, and why would you ever use anything else? And of course, we know that, you know, every carrier's got some, some good things and some bad things going on in that space. Um, and you look at institutional side and, you know, as exciting as getting up at four in the morning to check out how securities in Singapore are doing, uh, you know, every every day of the week for 10 years before you might go from analyst to portfolio manager is, um, you know, I really wanted to get back to helping individuals. Um, I think that was the biggest thing that I kind of missed in my time uh, working with IBM and being in the military. You know, you're, you're helping people, but you're helping these massive organizations or these greater causes. And it's hard to see the direct impact you're making on individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that was the biggest shock for me coming into the profession. Um, I started out at a broker dealer and eventually shifted out of that just because I was just kind of there pushing product and I didn't enjoy that so much. So uh, what type of clients are you currently working with? I guess, you know, you're running your own book of business at Waddle. Who are you working with each and every day as your clients? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. When I got into being a financial planner, I think like a lot of financial planners, I worked with anybody who could fog a mirror. Um, The the thing that attracted me to Waddell in the first place was that they really focused everything on being a financial plan first, followed by implementation or solutions. Um, So my first couple of years, you know, I was working with people that I worked with at IBM. I was working with friends and family, and that wasn't because they sent me out there to to go solicit to them, but because that's who I knew. Um, I pretty quickly after starting my practice joined the Longmont Chamber of Commerce, the Boulder Chamber of Commerce, which are the the chambers in the area I live in here in Colorado. And uh, I just kind of got uh, married to those communities. Um, there's now a running joke that I live in the basement of the Longmont Chamber. Um, you know, I was awarded Ambassador of the Year last year by that organization. Um, and so what's come ha- kind of happened over time is that though I really didn't target business owners or self-employed people directly, what I found is that I've ended up working with people that I would describe as being in a position of trust. So that is people who run their own business, who are trying to make their business work for themselves. That's business owners trying to figure out what's best for their employees or for their, uh, you know, for their team. Um, and over time, what I've also grown into quite a bit uh, is working with attorneys and trustees uh, on estate issues, divorce issues, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of that, I think, comes back to just really, really aggressively trying to make a differentiation point around, you know, what is the quality of what you're doing with your finances and particularly not just yours, but with other people's if you're responsible for them. At this point in your career, have you really set that as, you know, like a barrier to planning with you, you know, business owner, attorney, or are you still working with clients of all walks of life? Uh, I work with clients of all walks of life, um, and I actually feel pretty ethically compelled to keep doing that, um, even if I one day find that I really do have a really thick book uh, of trustees or stewards or business owners, that sort of thing. Um, when I was going through the process of getting licensed and evaluating the the kind of career track of being a financial planner, uh, I really looked for other people's input um, because I personally had had one interaction with a financial advisor before I ever became a financial planner. And the interaction I had was not great, but I wanted to know what other people thought. And the, the recurring thing that kept coming up over and over again was, yeah, I, you know, I got a bonus at work. I went into the bank. I asked them who I could talk to. They pointed me to some guy in an 
office. Uh, he asked me how much I had. I said I'd just gotten $3,000. And he said, sorry, we only work with a quarter million and above. Or we only work with people $10,000 and above. Um, and so for me, ethically, if somebody asks for my help, as difficult as it is for people to admit they have money challenges as, you know, today, um, I'm going to at least help them. And what that usually results in is either they're a good fit, I can work with them, or they are not a good fit because of one or two reasons. Either their issue is so simple that they really don't need a financial planner. It's something they maybe could have Googled or figured out, but they decided to ask for help. So that that just becomes a pro bono case where I'm just going to answer their questions, point them in the right direction, get them going in life. Or you occasionally run into those people who are really hoping you're going to help them invest in the next big cryptocurrency or something like that. Um, you know, for those folks, as I'm sure we've all had that conversation, um, you know, the, the risk parameters just don't make any sense. So we're just not a good fit. Uh, but if somebody is brave enough to ask me for help with financial planning, I'm going to work with them or I'm at least going to point them in the right direction. Wow. I think that's you know a really great approach to just to the whole conversation, right? I, I know that's the biggest problem that most advisors have is we're, we might be talking to people who quite aren't ready to take that leap of faith and ask for help. So when you're working with such a wide set of people, how exactly are you charging them? You know, even when it does turn into a pro bono, are you are you charging them in advance of that before that? Or how are you, I guess, going through the, the prospecting journey to to get your clients into eventually say, hey, it's time to pay me? I, I follow a process that I think most planners follow, which is, hey, you know, the, the initial conversation is free. That consult is free. Uh, and if somebody comes in and, you know, during the process of that initial kind of financial plan conversation, uh, it's pretty obvious that they're going to need, uh, you know, pro bono support. Maybe they're, you know, just, just recovering from bankruptcy. Maybe they're in such a low income occupation that they can't begin to afford it or they come to you with kind of a debt problem. Um, then often the result of that con- consultation is that I'm getting them in touch with the resources that they need. Um, if their issue is right there on the fence, then we'll kind of follow the FPA's model for doing pro bono work. We'll go ahead and do a financial planning services agreement. We'll discount it down to zero and we'll, we'll help them go on for there. Um, for those folks who are kind of more normal or, or you know, I, I don't want to alienate by saying normal, but for those folks who are kind of a normal client fit, um, for those folks, we typically charge a financial planning fee in advance. It's usually calculated from a combination of factors, including income, uh, assets, number of accounts. Um, we try to boil that down really to how much time is this going to take and then just provide, kind of spread that across uh, a calculation of that time versus the compensation we'd like to receive for that time. Uh, we'll provide that in advance to a client kind of at the end of the data gathering process. At that point, we have the data we need to make that estimate, provide that information to the client. They can choose to accept it or not accept it at that time. Uh, But if they accept it, then we're retained in advance. We build out the plan. We go through multiple meetings of kind of strategy conversations and kind of rebuilding the the goals and perspectives uh, and then help them implement that plan. Um, On the back end of that, obviously, we offer investment management as a service uh, and we offer other things like insurance brokerage or commissionable uh, investment brokerage. Although uh, in my own practice, I've I've made the decision earlier this year that I was going to kind of step back from doing transactional work like that. So kind of on a a going forward basis and for the last couple of months, uh, I've only accepted clients on a financial planning basis and on a fee-based investment management basis. Very interesting. And, and I really would like to key in on one of the first things you said there, charging what we think it's going to cost us in time, right? That's what you said, right? Yep. 
Okay. So how exactly are you coming up with that calculation? Because I know I've seen it in the forums. I've heard it at conferences. We're always so conscious as advisors about asking for a fee. We obviously want to be fair to the clients, but how do you make sure it's fair for you, the business owner in this case? Sure. So the the biggest thing I look at is really the the complexity. So um, I've got a pretty good calculation in my mind about how much time something is going to take. So if it, you know if somebody puts a million dollars in front of me, it's all in one account. Uh, they're already retired. They're living on Social Security. That's not a complicated financial plan. They might have complicated financial needs, but there's not a lot of variables that go into that. So there's not a lot of financial data entry into financial planning software. There's only so many scenarios you can build out. Um, um, and so what's fair there is to just reflect the amount of time that that's going to take. On the other side, if somebody comes in with three rental properties, a business, a both an independent contractor relationship and a full corporation, they've got you know investment accounts scattered all over the place. That's going to take even more time, even though they might be at a lower net worth in a scenario like that. Um, so we're going to take all of that and really just calculate it out to what I found to be a pretty accurate representation of the time it will take to complete the plan, or at least complete all the drafts of the plan and the implementation. Uh, multiply that out by kind of just a, a basic hourly amount, and then that's what gets presented to the client as their fee. Um, I'm very clear about this is my you know estimate. If I'm wrong, that's not your fault. I'm not going to come back to you and ask you for more money on the back end. Um, but again, they get to accept that up front and know what the cost is up front. Uh, past that, if they want to kind of keep it retained or keep it going over the long term, then kind of on a biannual basis, they can always kind of resubscribe to that. I guess, again, just to dig a little further into that, how, how did you come up with, you know, the, the calculation? Like, how did you know as a business owner, this is what I need to make to make it worth my time? Were you looking at, you know, this much goes to overhead, this much, you know, is my target profit margin? How did you come to that number? So I actually didn't do it from a cost standpoint. And part of the reason for that is my practice, and, and I'm a solo practice for everybody else's context. Uh, my practice is at a stage where I don't need new revenue to meet my lifestyle goals or needs. Um, you know, I'd like to grow my practice. I'd like to bring more people in. But um, I don't price plans on a operating cost basis. I price it on what I think the value of the time is worth. Um, you know, I took resources like the Kitsis report from last year regarding kind of what the, the cost of plans are, uh, looked at what my time is worth with all the work I'm already currently doing and kind of used that to engineer what I felt was the appropriate increment. Um, so typically, clients, depending on their complexity, end up in a range somewhere between $1,500 and $3,000 on a plan. Uh, I've had plans scoop as low as $300. I have had plans go up to $3,600. Um, but it all comes back to that complexity question. Um, I don't engineer out of a, well, you know, the cost of the lights is this much and dividing the, the time for a subscription to e-money and all this comes out to this much. Uh, I really look at just a, a time value question. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I didn't mean for it to sound like that, you know, ticky tacky, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not calculating the, the kilowatt hours they're using uh, when they're in their office. So I guess, you know, as you mentioned there, at some point you would like to scale the practice. Is that going to impact what that fee range is? Are you going to reevaluate that and how are you really going to approach that topic? Because with more people, obviously, it becomes more overhead. Um, and yes, you can create more plans, but are you going to reevaluate that at all? 
No, not not directly or not immediately. And a big driver for that is if I bring someone on, that's that's a cost I'm taking on. That's not something I'm going to pass on to my clients. My business needs to support that person out of the gate. I don't need that person to kind of earn their keep or pay their way by the, the fees they could possibly generate or that sort of thing. Um, so the, the way I really look at that is that my practice has to hit a bandwidth challenge, as I think all practices reach uh, if they grow sufficiently, um, for me to then go ahead and feel that it's an appropriate investment to bring that person in. Uh, but even then, that person's probably a multi-year investment in terms of getting them uh, through their CFP certification, getting them through other designation pieces. Um, and I don't view bringing someone on as the in the way that a lot of people do. I don't see them as the person to start kind of pushing the bottom half of the book onto. Um, I look at that person and say, great, we're in a community of almost 100,000 people. I can only really effectively help, you know, 100, 125, something like that. Um, who are the 100, 125 people you can help in this community? Because here, here at least in Longmont, Colorado, uh, we've got 150 registered reps. We've got about 15 CFPs. And we've got only three CFPs offering financial planning um, in, in a way that I would recognize as financial planning. Um, so when we break that math down, you know, there's there's one Dan Yerger CFP or other CFP uh, for every, you know, right now, about 31,000 people. Um, so I, I look at that more as a, a needle to help the community than necessarily to improve the margins of my business. Yeah. And you really seem, you know, community driven. And I think that's very interesting compared to, you know, other people out there. And this is not to bash people who have a niche, but who solely focus on one target demographic. What, what was your drive to approach this as a, you know, a service to your community versus strictly a business? Uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up with money and you, you heard my background earlier with my family. Um, you know, it, there's absolutely a survival curve that has to be accounted for when you're thinking about it as a business. Um, you know, I don't want to tell any planner on day one, you've got to be thinking outside of yourself. You've got to be focusing on others. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the part of that lucky 13, 14% that make it past their, their first three or four years uh, in practice. I'm on a trajectory that tells me that short of dramatic economic upset, uh, I'm pretty well safe at this point. And so I look at it now as kind of giving back. Um, and, and I think back to, the, again, the people that I kind of talked to and interviewed uh, who were told no or told they didn't have enough money back in the day. Um, and, I, and again, I just look at the difficulty of people asking for help about something like money in the first place. And I I, I can't begin to say no to those folks. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, we are the community that we live in. Um, and that's not to say that uh, people working in a niche or specializing are doing a disservice to their community. They're just doing a service to a very specific community. Um, and they may have something really special to offer in that context. But when I come back to the number of CFPs doing financial planning in my community, right, there's one of me for every 31,000 people. I can't begin to help enough people. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, I feel ethically obligated to try to help as many people as I possibly can, because you know, and I know, and the people listening know that financial planning has the ability to make massive changes in people's lives and really, really change the direction of people's lives. And for me personally, that's not something that I can hold behind a, you know, a, a red rope saying, you know, that you must have a million dollars to enter or something like that. Right. And, and I think that's just you know, part of running a successful practice is, you, you have that, you know, that allowance, I guess, just to to give up some of that time because you are meeting the requirements for your lifestyle. 
and and that's huge, right? Again, when you're when you're trying to make your practice uh, you know, succeed, you know, if I was talking to Dan Yerger in his first year of practice, he'd be looking at me like I was crazy when I said that I did pro bono cases or just help you know, point to people in the right direction. Um, you know, but that's a luxury that's afforded to me on on this side of the line. Yeah, absolutely, and and I I love that, but I do want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, I know when we were first talking about how you were charging your clients, you you mentioned that on a going forward basis, you were going to do away with the transactional component of you know what you could offer clients. What was your reasoning behind that? You know, uh, a couple things come into that. So to give you some idea of what my perspective has changed just in really the last nine months, um, going into this year, I built my entire business plan for 2019 on the predicate of I'm going to ramp up the business, I'm going to get to a revenue level, and I'm going to I'm going to take the leap and I'm going to hire somebody in, uh, get somebody out of a financial planning program at one of the local universities uh, and get them spun up into, into a CFP track over the next couple of years. And that was my, my hardcore goal going in this year. Um, I then went and attended uh, the FBA retreat back in May out in La Jolla and uh, next gen gathering uh, down there in New Orleans uh, in June. Um, and the, the conversation being had amongst the financial planning community at that level and in those groups is just a totally different conversation than what you kind of read in articles or what you get kind of in your local community on financial planning. Um, And the biggest thing that I realized in the context of that was even though I had been fairly successful from a revenue standpoint in implementing solutions, uh, you know, term life, disability insurance, that sort of stuff in my practice, um, the two biggest things that stuck out for me was that number one, um, I don't have to be both the architect and the carpenter of the plans that I'm building. Right, I can do the design and I can walk a client through it and I can get somebody much more specialized in those areas to handle those parts. Uh, the second plain truth being, I don't actually like filling out insurance applications or chasing down medical records or any of the other things that go with that. Um, and to the investment side and the planning side and all of that, um, you know, it's hard for me to justify personally, and this is just my perspective, somebody's welcome to come out there and, and correct me on this, but uh, I just find it really hard to justify transactional costs in someone's portfolio, I think it puts uh, such a such a restraint on what you can do for people uh, when you're looking at, hey, you know, moving these assets is going to cost this much, or changing changing this thing out is going to cost this much. It's this constant kind of digging question at the back of your mind about, um, you know, is is this cost benefit trade-off appropriate for this person in this situation? Um, so from the going forward standpoint what I really want to focus for myself and what I really want to focus my future team on is let's be the best financial planners we can be. So let's not only be certified financial planners, uh, but let's have the designations of the credentials that really allow us to specialize in the, in the part of the community that we can help best. Um, whether that's being an accredited investment fiduciary, a certified divorce financial analyst, uh, even a chartered life underwriter or something back in the insurance world, but let's be the best planners we possibly can be. Uh, and let's leave, some of the implementation stuff to others. Um, there's a great little interview. Uh, I actually think it was Alan Moore interviewing Michael Kitsis or Michael Kitsis uh, interviewing Alan Moore. It was one of them. 
uh, back on the XY planning podcast uh, years ago, but they made the point, you know, you don't implement the mortgage for your clients. You don't file the tax returns for your clients. You don't write the will and trust for your clients. You don't put in place the reverse mortgage for your clients. You don't do all this stuff, but just because of our history and financial planning, we feel married to implementing these stuff. And I, I felt when I started my practice that having all the tools in my tool belt was a value, kind of a value add. And what I found over time is that I don't like using those tools directly or personally. Um, I really would prefer to be sticking kind of to the pencil or the pen in this particular analogy. Yeah. And I really like that analogy of, you know, the the architect and the carpenter. And I'll tell you what, from my broker dealer days, I do not miss underwriting. Uh, that is an <laughs> exhausting process at times. Um, but, but I do really like what you said there. And I think that has, you know, a bearing on, on the compensation, right? Like a good architect should be paid a good architect's pay rate, right? And same with the carpenter. Um, so I guess when you were getting, you know, into that, what is it about the carpenter side of the business you didn't like? Other than, you know, that constant, you know, conflict of interest, essentially, in the back of your head. Well, and, and the conflict of interest is actually kind of an interesting part to me because we as as a profession tend to look at it and say, uh, you know, we're being fiduciaries. We're doing the best thing as planners for our clients if we don't consciously think about the compensation piece of it. Um, so, for example, even though, uh, you know, I, I think one year in my practice made the million dollar club or table, a million dollars, whatever, whatever it's called, uh, round table, a million dollars, uh, that insurance organization, um, I qualified for it and I didn't bother to, to join it or sign up for it because I didn't even realize that I'd done that much insurance production that year. Um, everything that I'd done had come as a, as a result of just building out a financial plan and finding like, oh, this person needs, you know, half a million dollars in term coverage until their kids are out of the house. Um, and so that piece of things uh, proved to just to be kind of distracting. Um, I think a lot of the frustrations I dealt with uh, over the over the years had to do with um, you know the hospital not sending the records on time or the person forgetting uh, to mention on their application that they had arthritis. And even though insurance is a really important component of a financial plan, um, you know sometimes you're implementing what turns out based on the plan data to be the right solution for this person, and the compensation does show up. And it sometimes it's a little shocking what the reimbursement can be for some of the strategies that you implement. Um, and, you know, I, I look at it and I look at the, not the conflict of interest, but I look at the, kind of the data here. Um, for example, you know, we look at something like the Kitsis report from last year and we see that uh, RIAs that have no insurance arm uh, spend almost no time on insurance planning. And that's probably a disservice to clients. But that tells us that the compensation does at least subconsciously drive us to pay more attention to that area or pay less attention to that area. On the other side of it, um, almost all the cases of somebody being in something bad for them or inappropriate for them over the years have had to do with uh, insurance products or commission products or liquid investments or stuff with, with high compensation tied to it. Um, and so for me, you know, the, coming back to the architect and the carpenter part of it, I don't view something like managing a passive index-based portfolio as carpentry, right? That's, that's something that... Uh, can almost be done. I don't want to say on autopilot, but you know, uh, to to the expression that Carl Richards uses, 
right, investing done right is like watching grass grow. Um, you know, your focus throughout the year and over time really should be focusing more on, hey, are we doing the planning work? Are we keeping things up to date? Are we being tax efficient? All that stuff. Um, and that's all in the planning world. That's not in the world of filling out 19 page, uh, you know, 1035 paperwork from old annuities to lower cost annuities or uh, filling out, you know, 30 page health questionnaires for life policies. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, some of those conflicts when you're thinking about the compensation. I know, you know, you backed away from it a little bit, but it, it, is that driving you again towards that architect side? Have you seen things gone wrong? I mean, I, I understand the value of products, you know, that they, they need to be in a financial plan, but did that influence part of your decision as well? Actually, not not so much, right? So when I talk about my practice being in a place where I don't, you know, really need to focus on the revenue as much or what clients can compensate me with as much, part of what comes of that is that my you know, my practice just on uh, investment plan uh, investment fee management fees and financial planning fees supports my entire practice on an ongoing basis. The insurance component of the practice has become such a, such a minute level and the commission-based part has become such a minute level that I can cut that part of my practice off entirely um, and I don't see any noticeable difference in compensation. Now, could that change if I wrote some giant million-dollar variable universal life policy? Sure, but that's kind of going out to the extremes. Um, you know, for me, I care much less about the compensation and the conflicts thereof and more about doing the part that I am good at uh, and focusing on that particular area. And the other piece is, you know, as I've gotten kind of more educated in financial planning, right? I'm a certified financial planner, an AIF, a CDFA, a CHFC. Um, I have my MBA uh, certified in finance. The, the more education I've got, the more I've realized that even though I don't personally want to be a niche practitioner, I don't want to say that I only work with cardiologists that work for a particular hospital network or something like that. Um, you know, I don't want to trick myself into thinking I know everything and then potentially doing a disservice because I don't have the time or the bandwidth to do the full scale of due diligence necessary to pick the best insurance product for somebody or to find the best commission-based UIT or whatever the case might be. Right. And, and I think that's just something that's really developed over the past you know few years. Again, I was the same way when I left the broker-dealer. I saw a lot of bad things. So that's just how I, I viewed it. And here you are, someone who has access to those products, access to that type of compensation, and you're not even it. So it's not really fair to label someone based on what environment they're working in, correct? Well, and I think that's certainly true. And to that same extent right there, there's always going to be bad eggs. Um, at the same time, it's very concerning when you have stuff like that uh, Worst of Both Worlds study that came out of North, uh, Northeastern University a couple weeks ago, um, You know, comparing the 75 largest broker-dealer, dual-registered uh, hybrid firms and the largest 75 RIA-only firms, um, You know, and the average... Uh, fee or penalty paid by the largest 75 firms every year is like $6.6 million a year. And the only uh, of all the 75 largest RIAs, the only uh, fine or penalty that's been paid at all was by one firm and it was $20,000. I mean, that stuff is there in the macroeconomic scale where um, I think if you're being honest with yourself, you have to really evaluate, you know, just because I don't consciously decide to do something that's not in the best interest of my client, just because I don't consciously say that I want the commission, just because I don't consciously say that uh, I'm going to you know, put my own interest first 
doesn't mean that there aren't things outside of your control that are potentially uh, influencing or affecting you, right? That's why it's called a conflict of interest, not a deliberately evil choice. Um, you know, I, I th- and, and to that extent, one of the great concerns I have is that um, for all the great good of the CFP education of the new code of ethics and practice standards, which I love, I, tr- I really do, um, the one thing that I think is probably lacking in a lot of education is how do we as financial planners act in the best interest of our clients? Not how do we disclose it? Not how do we document it? Not how do we uh, make sure we're checking all the boxes and filling in all the forms and handing over all the disclosures? How do you know step by step, day by day, the financial planning process that you are acting in the best interest of your client? I think that's a huge question that we're not asking. We're not doing a good job of discussion. You know, I really liked just what you said there, plus the addition of not acting like you know everything. Do you think that, in a sense, some of the way continuing education has been structured has evolved us into that sense of complacency? Like, hey, we got our CEs and that's good enough? You know, CE, I think, is the, the, like the worst carrot uh, humanly possible to motivate people to learn things. I think uh, a financial planner who is genuinely a lifelong learner, who is genuinely a student of their craft doesn't need CEs to go through their education, right? Um, you know, I got my CFP in 2018. That same year, I got my AIF. This year, I picked up the CDFA and the CHFC. Um, next year, I'm looking at the RICP and the AEP, um, you know, and RLP for that matter. Um, and I'm doing that because I, I'm I'm hungry to know that which I don't know. And I'm certain that by the time I finish that education, though I'll know a little bit more, I'll be positive that I don't know enough to do some other stuff. Um, and I, I think, you know, CE is necessary. Um, I don't know that its current structure around, hey, here's an hour-long seminar on the tax efficiency of ETFs uh, is really the necessary thing for us right now. But that's that's my totally subjective opinion. So going back to what you had said in the beginning about having good and bad experiences with things, you mentioned now that you're not you know, in this product side of the business, you're not actively focused on that. What are you looking for in carriers to determine if they're good or bad? Well, the, the biggest trick here is you really need to look at, first of all, what is the planning problem we're trying to solve, right? So a lot of people try to play the apples to apples game with stuff like annuities or life insurance uh, against investments. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not the same thing. They can have an investment component, but they're absolutely not the same thing. Um, you know, I, I look at something like an annuity out there that might pay a guaranteed 6% step up compounding, not simple interest. Um, and if the financial plan comes back and says that this person only needs a 4.9% rate of interest for their plan to succeed, there's a pretty good case to be made for using that particular item to solve that particular problem. But it really relies on the assumptions you made in your financial plan, right? If your inflation assumptions, that sort of thing were wrong, it might not be sufficient. Um, I think the bigger problem we run into is the Maslow's hammer problem, right? For a carpenter who's only tools a hammer, all problems look like nails. So when you're looking at insurance carriers or product companies, I mean, I'll, I'll give you my example, right? I don't talk to wholesalers. I don't want to talk to wholesalers. They're very nice people. They know a lot about their products. Um, but I, I tend to find that they all present everything in the shiniest way possible because that's their job. And I, I can understand that. Um, but I think when you're looking at a life insurance company, you should really be going back and taking a good hard look at what are the internal expenses? What are the assumptions being used for this thing? Uh, what are the interest rates? What are the, the crediting systems? Um, you know, for some of those guaranteed issue carriers or online companies, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I can think of one that I get 
blasted with on Facebook uh, with for ads for, um, and I went and ran comparison quotes uh, for them and against another carrier, and all their policies are more expensive, and the policies I'm looking at have a commission on them. Um, so I think you you really need to do your due diligence and not just kind of fall into the trap of, hey, who's got the lowest cost product? That's the right one. Or who's the easiest to underwrite with? That's the right one. Um, but I think to the point of, of kind of my stepping back from it, um, I really do respect the point where, you know, for you to have a comprehensive understanding of all the life po- products out there, all the annuity products out there, disability products, long-term care, that's a full-time job. Um, you know, I, I used to fool myself into thinking that I really could just wrap my hands around it. But when, when it comes to all the, the tips and tricks and little ifs, ands, buts, and what's around these particular products, I mean, there's some serious due diligence you've got to do in that corner. And I think the, the thing that planners have to really do is step back and, again, ask themselves, you know, how do I know that I am evaluating everything I need to evaluate uh, for this sort of product to know that it is the best option for this particular circumstance? And how am I mitigating my own conflicts of interest, right? If I, again, if I find that the plan shows that this person needs this rate of interest, uh, but it's a product that I'm not able to offer because I'm fee only or because I only do fee-based investment management or something like that, what is my system for checking myself when I kind of reflexively go, ah, you know, but that's illegal, that's not good, That we shouldn't use that. Um, so I think people really need to, to really create their own rule set or ha- or use someone else's rule set for evaluating their decision-making process and their evaluation process for this sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and that's a fantastic point. Those products are changing all of the time, right? So again, let's let's focus on being compensated as the architect, not being compensated as the carpenter and find a good carpenter who knows what the best building materials are for this particular situation. And I think that's a, a place that we, we need to get to. I would love to see the industry as a whole adopt a, uh, you know, a levelized uh, commission structure for the per per unit of insurance costs or something like that. You know, hey, for every thousand dollars of insurance, the commission is, uh, you know, one dollar or something like that. Um, or I'd love to see more uh, fee based or uh, investment advisory based uh, annuity products out there. I would love to see um, just more stuff that takes takes the compensation question out of the formula or the the difference in compensation out of the formula and really brings it back to, am I evaluating this product or this option based on its individual merits, its writers, its benefits, rather than its writers, its merits, its benefits, the cost of the premium to the client, and at the end of the the, the road here, what's the payout? Um, I think if we can carve some of those things out, they become much stronger tools for everyone. Right. And we might see less of those, you know, shiny one trick ponies that solve every problem under the sun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can certainly (laughs) hope so. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. I really enjoyed this compensation. There was a ton of great value in this. I hope to see you around at some of the future FBA conferences. Yeah. I'll uh, hope to see it at FBA National this year. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.